hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. It used to be so simple. Women were just advised to get a mammogram every year after age 40 or 50. But now we have not just x-rays, but ultrasound, MRI, digital breast tomosynthesis, screening mammograms, diagnostic mammograms. Women are confused. And frankly, a lot of doctors are also confused. So what is the best approach for the early detection of breast cancer? To answer that question, I am joined by Dr. Lisa Larkin, a board-certified internist, a certified menopause practitioner of the North American Menopause Society, and a nationally recognized expert in breast cancer risk assessment and prevention. Welcome, Dr. Larkin. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Stryker. Always a pleasure to, to talk with you. And you know, and I, and I forgot to mention that um, we're, we're good friends. And aside from many memorable dinners together, we've been on countless stages, panels, TV cameras. So it's good to be here with you again. Thank you, dear. So let's start with screening. I mean, acknowledging that any woman, any woman can develop breast cancer, even if she has no risk factors. Can you start by defining who you would consider to be low risk and what the current screening recommendations are for low risk women, specifically over the age of 50? Well, right. Well, if it's okay with you, Dr. Stryker, I want to take a step back Please uh, before do. we actually get to screening and really just talk about what the data shows and where I think we are really, it's a big miss for women. So, uh, all women generally know the statistic, one in eight or a 12% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, but that's a population number. And so women don't understand whether or not their risk and don't have a sense of if it's lower than that, equal to that, or higher than that. And what we know is that many women have substantially higher breast cancer risk than that 12% lifetime risk. And those women are going undetected. And so it's really much more, you know, mammograms are critically important. We need to be screening women, which we'll get to, um, because early detection saves lives. The smaller we identify a tumor, the easier the treatment is, the longer, you know, the better the five-year survival. But from my vantage, we need to actually take a step back like we do with cardiovascular disease, in fact, to find those individuals who are at high risk so we can actually be much more proactive about lifestyle and or medication to lower their risk and to do enhanced screening for those women at very high risk. But the first and foremost thing is we're not identifying those women. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, and we are going to get to things that women can do to modify their risk, but your point is, is so important. You know, with healthcare being the way it is, and you and I have talked about this a lot, right? So women fall through the cracks in their midlife. So, you know, women who are done childbearing, they don't have as many contacts with their OBGYN anymore. You know, we're talking about women in their early 40s where they're just starting to become perimenopausal, but they're really healthy all the way through 55 or almost to 60 before women start really having a lot of health issues. And so there's very few points of contact with physicians um, during that period of time, unless it's for a sinus infection or a UTI, right? 
And at that point, so, so where we as women's health clinicians have the biggest opportunity to impact a woman's life, frankly, is in that age group of 40, 45 to 60. And what do I mean by that? That's really, again, if we're just focusing on breast cancer today, that's really where we have the opportunity to identify those women who are at high risk by doing a family history and really finding the women that should have hereditary genetic cancer testing. We're missing those almost entirely. I mean, we, yeah. we believe now we've only identified 10% of women who carry a genetic mutation that puts them at risk. So we're missing those people. And then we're also missing the women who have extremely dense breasts and other reproductive factors that puts them at very high risk. Um, I did uh, several community events in Cincinnati um, a couple of years ago, um, looked at 150 women who came to a breast, different breast cancer events. Um, and I actually calculated their risks and gave them information about their individual risk back to them. But when the question was asked for women to identify their risk before I actually did the calculations for them, they were wrong almost all of the time, right? So women believe largely that if they don't have a family history of breast cancer, that that must mean that their risk is lower than the general population, when in fact, that's not true at all. 70% of breast cancers are in women who don't have family history. And actually, family history isn't the most important thing that's driving breast cancer risk. And so, again, we just really need to educate and empower women to really on those rare opportunities when they see their clinicians to make sure that they are bringing up family history if they have an unusual family history and they're asking the right questions about their breast cancer risk and their breast density. I think that's the most common thing that women say to me when I encourage them to get screening. They'll say, well, I don't have a family history. And my answer always is, well, I hope that now you don't have a family history, but now you might be the first. And the other well, thing that, also that's is, right. is, is people don't know their me. family histories. I mean, how often have you had a patient that you're also seeing another family member and you get two entirely different family histories. You know, grandma died from uterine cancer. And then the next one, you know, her sister comes in and says, you know, grandma died from bone cancer. So even though family history can be important, particularly if someone has a genetic mutation, the truth is, is you can't depend on the family history that, you know, no, think and, to be true and, anyway. 100%, and, and you probably know, Lauren, that there's a, in the um, hereditary cancer space, um, there's really a big push now that cost has come way down of these panels, right? So now we can do a 84 gene panel for $250. The cost yeah. has come way down, um, but there's a big push among some groups of uh, cancer geneticists that we should be doing population screening for right. that exact reason, which is that screening everybody. And, you know, right. I, mean, I was asking, I mean, let's talk about that right now, since we're on the subject, I was going to talk about it later, but let's talk about it now, because I think everyone has heard of a BRCA mutation, but there's a lot of other mutations. BRCA is not the only one that's associated with breast cancer. And there's also a lot of misconception about who might have a BRCA mutation. And we do know that women who have BRCA mutations are at higher risk for developing breast cancer than any other you know, population, but it is, a, you know, it, it's out there and people need to know. So can you just real quickly talk about who sh should consider themselves to be at increased risk for a genetic mutation? And in a perfect world, everyone would get screened for genetic mutations. But if someone, Correct. if everyone's that, not going to get screened, looking, who should absolutely get screened? Well, right. So where we're looking at now are individuals with family histories that we 
know they're called NCCN guidelines, put them at high risk. And that would be uh, multiple family generation, you know, a, a mother and a sister with breast cancer. It's early breast cancer in a first or second degree relative. It's anyone with male breast cancer. It's anyone with early stage colorectal cancer. Mm -hmm. um, Ashkenazi Jewish individuals, for example, um, now there's, uh, you know, because the prevalence of the BRCA mutations is relatively high in that population, now there's even guidelines that you can consider offering anyone who's of Ashkenazi Jewish descent testing. And again, where it's going is the family history is cumbersome. And again, we we know that doctors aren't taking good family histories. To your point, we know that patients often don't have accurate family histories and that there are real barriers. So we, again, continue to miss all of these women that have mutations. And that's where the shift is looking like it's going to go, which is that, you know, women and men are going to get one time hereditary cancer mutation panel at some point between 30 and 45. And it's only a test you need to do once. Now, whether or not that will happen in the next couple of years, but I think that's the direction that it's clearly moving. I don't know if the statistic is still the case, but years ago, I remember hearing that the women who were most least likely to be identified as having a BRCA mutation were women who were of not Jewish descent because they didn't think they needed to be tested. And, and we know that that's not the case. And also, just to be clear, for those who aren't familiar, Ashkenazi uh, Jewish uh, population is Eastern European Jewish population because... So that's absolutely correct. So um, it's one of the reasons also that um, your listeners should be cautious about using 23andMe to do yeah. their genetic testing because only 23andMe is only looking at founder mutations that we see in Ash three specific founder mutations. And there's lots of different mutations uh, that are associated with BRCA1 and BRCA2. And so where there's a potential concern with that is that women get that over-the-counter genetic testing they actually still have a mutation in one of their other genes that wasn't even looked at, but they have a false sense of security about the, the 23andMe. Right. Um, so use so 23andMe and Ancestry to find out if your father is really your father, but not about right. your genetic that's, background. That's, that's what I would say too, Lauren. That's exactly right. All right. Let's, let's circle back because we got a little bit off track. And I do yeah. want to talk about, just to be very clear, what the current screening recommendations are right. for low-risk women. So one of the confusing things for, um, frankly, uh, you know, women um, as well as physicians is that the screening guidelines, depending on which professional organization that you look at, they differ. Um, some of them, they start at 40 and do every year. Some of them, 45. Some of the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is age 50. Um, there's different recommendations about the tomosynthesis. There's different recommendations about when to stop. I will tell you that um, I follow uh, the guidelines of ACOG. I start at 40. I do screening annually. Um, and I make the decision when to stop when a woman through what we call shared decision-making, when her life expectancy for other reasons is less than 10 years. And then, you know, at that point, then the potential of finding a small breast cancer probably is not going to impact her survival. So it becomes a little bit more debatable, you know, whether or not you should be doing a uh, mammograms in an 85-year-old. But I will tell you, I, I do have 85-year-olds where I am still encouraging them to do mammograms because I have a lot of very healthy 85-year-olds. Um, so I don't have an automatic cutoff, but I really do start at 40 for women. Um, and again, earlier, depending on family history and if they carry a hereditary cancer mutation, and I may be doing breast MRI in addition to mammogram in women who identify it to be at high risk. Okay. So let's talk about 
who should be getting an MRI, who should be getting an ultrasound, what is uh, telosynthesis and who should be getting it? Right. So telosynthesis is the new 3D mammography. So it's a new way of looking at the breast tissue that's more. So when you had the older digital 2D mammograms, you're just basically compressing the breasts in two directions. Now we're able to take different slices, more like a CAT scan, really, in terms of the images, so that the radiologist has an easier time to scroll through multiple images. And so you can see things definitely better on a 3D tomosynthesis mammogram, especially in women who have extremely dense breasts, where a small tumor really can hide in the background of lots of glandular tissue. So you can't find a polar bear in a snowstorm. So 3D really, for most women, has become standard now. So, you know, five, seven years ago, it was debatable. You know, we were still doing a lot of 2D at that point, but at least in my city, almost every machine now is 3D and women are pretty much getting 3D mammograms all the time. It also sounds like that's going to be a lot less painful because you and I know that a lot of women avoid mammography for no other reason that it hurts when they compress the breast. Correct. And I I won't tell you there's no compression with the tomosynthesis, but you're, you're, Correct. Um, And that is a, you know, I, I, yes, less. And I don't, I don't have to get mammograms myself anymore. Right. So as the breast cancer survivor with no breast tissue now, but um, you know, that is something I talk to patients about because again, um, we have to overcome obstacles. We know that we don't have a hundred percent screening mammography rates and we do really need to uh, improve on that, particularly in populations where we know we're missing in our underinsured, our uh, minority populations, you know, mammogram rates are way too low and we know we need to do them to detect the cancer early. You mentioned that you yourself had breast cancer. You are, it was years ago. You are healthy. You are fabulous. You are amazing. No trace of cancer. Share with us how your cancer was detected, if you don't mind. Sure. So um, I was 49 um, and I felt my own lump. I will tell you, I had serial mammograms. I had not missed one. Um, I felt a lump about six months after I had had a negative mammogram um, and no family history at all. Um, No family history. No family history at all and really no identifiable reason. Now, I will tell you what's interesting is so so I'm just at eight years now when I had uh, my genetic testing done at that point, I paid $4,000 out of pocket. And really we were doing a very small, I think it was only nine genes that we were looking at at this time. So anyone who's had a hereditary cancer panel done prior to 2013 really should have it re-updated now because there's many more mutations. So, and I just, frankly, in the last couple of years, redid mine to make sure my, my genetic testing was negative the first time I did it, but now we have these expanded panels and I wanted to make sure for my children that I wasn't missing anything, but, you know, and I just want to point out for children, not just for daughters, but for sons as well. Absolutely. So the hereditary genes, it's a 50, 50 chance of passing your mutation. If you carry one to any offspring, so boys and girls, and again, it's not insignificant. I mean, we, we need to identify men who carry mutations as well, because then they have a 50, 50 chance of passing it on to their child as well. Um, so I, I don't have a hereditary cancer mutation. I just updated my genetics. I'm 84 genes are all negative um, and don't really have, didn't really have an identifiable risk factor with the exception of extremely dense breasts. And that's the one 
really thing I would encourage all women listening. Um, you know, for years now, we've been talking about breast density, but women, again, don't, it's better now in the last couple of years, more women kind of can say, yes, I've been told I had dense breasts. Um, but every woman should look at their mammogram report and try to find the exact language in there that describes their breast density. Because if it says extremely dense breasts, and that's about 10% of the population, extremely dense breasts doubles a woman's risk of developing breast cancer. So those are the women that I've been encouraging when I speak to doctors that they actually identify because those are the women that probably hit that threshold of 20% lifetime risk and should be getting breast MRIs in addition to their mammograms. But also to know for women that it, you know, it doubles your risk. And so again, you're, if you have extremely dense breasts, that's something that you really want um, to know about. And then again, that was my only risk factor. And at the time of my diagnosis, um, even with a negative mammogram six months prior, I had multifocal disease and a large primary. I mean, I, I had advanced um, breast cancer. At the I time remember of my you diagnosis. went through extensive, extensive treatment. But right. what I need you to talk about is the fact that a lot of women will say, all right, so there is an example. Dr. Larkin had a mammogram and they didn't find it. So why should I get my mammogram? What's right. your response? I, I can exp I can absolutely um, uh, explain that. Um, so you know, we know mammograms aren't perfect. It's not a, they're not a perfect test. They are the gold standard for what we have for screening for all women. What's really important again is had I even known at the time and when I was diagnosed, they were just coming out with the tomosynthesis. So a 3D mammogram for me would have picked up my tumor earlier. I don't know how much earlier I predict on the at least one prior mammogram, maybe even two, because just statistically, I had I had a tumor that was large enough that would have been on two prior mammograms. So the tomosynthesis is really an advantage now for sure. But had I even had my extremely dense breasts identified or I really knew about that, I would have been getting an MRI. And again, I would have been detected earlier. So, I mean, I think mammograms aren't perfect, but we know they are really effective in the majority of women of identifying small tumors, but the subgroup of extremely dense women, we do know we miss more. Should a woman ask when she is scheduling a mammogram, what kind of equipment they have? Because while certainly most major medical centers and the places where we work, that's automatic, but it's not automatic everywhere. So, so, should a woman so ask? I think, I think your point's really well taken, right? Although the 3d is becoming, um, again, much more prevalent. And I think in the next few years, we won't have 2D anymore at all. But at this point, if you're in an area, you're not sure uh, what's happening, where you're getting your mammogram, I would ask. And I would actually even ask if you don't know your breast density, or you can't actually open it on your, you know, your my chart or, you know, whatever you use for your health portal with your health system to be able to identify what your breast density is. You can ask the person to pull up your prior breast you know, your mammogram and see if you can get it right when you're checking in. Because if you, if you do have extremely dense breasts, I would tell you that you need to have a 3D mammogram at the very least mm -hmm. that you would want to be doing the tomosynthesis. And if you have extremely dense breasts, I'd also encourage you to talk to your physician about doing one of these models that I do in practice to um, see if your lifetime risk is above 20%. And really, you should be getting breast MRI in addition to the mammogram. Talk a little bit about these models that women could use to see what their risk is and if this is something that they can do on their own or it has to be through a doctor. Right. So um, there's lots of models out there. The two that I 
use in practice, I use for very specific reasons. One is called the Gale model, and that's a very simple five question. Um, uh, you know, you answer five questions and you can easily, if you Google Gale model, you can do it online yourself. And I will put there's, it in the program notes. You right, don't there's there's some disadvantages with the Gale model, but I, I use it as a comparison to the other model that I like, which is called the Tire Cusick, which again is available online. And you can look at it. The Tire Cusick um, is more cumbersome and complicated to do and requires um, a little bit of practice. I, you know, I try to teach clinicians how to use it. The Gale model at least gives you a down and dirty kind of estimate of your five-year and lifetime risk. And it, the images really are nice when it compares it to population risk. So you can get a, a sense. The pitfalls of the Gale model, even though it's easy to use, is that it does not incorporate breast density and it only uses first generation, one generation family history. And so it's, it's, in my opinion, less accurate, but I use it as kind of a starting point for then I do the tire Cusick. So the tire Cusick is a lot more questions, um, but it takes into consideration your uh, reproductive factors. So age at puberty, age at menopause, it takes into consideration breast density, it takes into consideration your, your height and your weight and your BMI, which also is very important. And then it does a three-generation family history. So it requires entering a lot of data, um, asks questions about prior genetic testing, um, and gives really a, a, a very impact. The guidelines now would tell you if the tire Cusick is over a 20% lifetime risk that that's, and I put this in uh, my orders when I order the breast MRI all the time, I write in tire Cusick calculated lifetime risk is 32%. Tire Cusick calculated risk is 26% um, in order to get the MRI covered because the guidelines well, really so important are- when we talk about is, coverage because yeah. I, I think it's important to emphasize that the reason to do these risk assessments isn't just so you can either be happy or be scared. It's because it will tell you if you- are eligible to have some of these more expensive screening techniques, such as an MRI, because the reality is, is we know that insurance is not always going to cover it and it is cost prohibitive for most women, but these are tactics that are legitimate tactics that can be used in order to, to get coverage. And in fact, you can tell your doctor that I did this risk assessment. And if you put the results of the risk assessment in, then uh, my insurance should cover it. Who should have an ultrasound? So, right. So it depends if you're talking about a diagnostic ultrasound when they see an area on a mammogram. And that typically what will happen is either you feel something or your doctor feels something on an exam and then you have a mammogram that doesn't see it or they see something on a mammogram that they want to better define, assist to look at it under ultrasound. And that's that's one specific type of ultrasound. And and. Then there's a second, which is called whole breast ultrasound, which really um, has been looked at as another alternative to breast MRI as a second modality for screening women who are at elevated risk. Now, I can tell you in my community in Cincinnati, all of Cincinnati, no one has whole breast ultrasound. So my only option here in Cincinnati is to do a breast MRI. I don't know if you do, Lauren, at Northwestern have whole breast ultrasound, but I have to send people to OSU, um, to Columbus uh, at OSU to get whole breast ultrasound if they want to go that route. Now, I will tell you, I just spoke at a um, CME in uh, Washington, D.C., um, and was with a colleague who's a breast 
imaging um, expert who spoke, and she does not feel that the whole breast ultrasound is as good as MRI. Um, and so really thinks that the data that the longer that that's been out um, is that it's not, it's not really the best second modality and that really breast MRI is better. And the other thing I would just mention is breast MRI isn't all that comfortable either. It's a long test. Um, you lay flat down in the scanner. Your breasts are also can compressed. You have to get gadolinium. It takes 50 to 60 minutes for a full sequence breast MRI. And it isn't great. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's, you know, it's not great. But it's now not like we, a lot of people think ultrasound and they remember when they got an ultrasound when they were pregnant and thought, well, that right. was no big deal. That right. was fine. Right. Um, and then uh, now there's rapid sequence or short sequence uh, breast MRIs, which are about a third of the, the duration still requires uh, contrast, but really they're doing that now to um, decrease cost of the MRI and also increase the number of tests that they can do in any period of time. And the data is looking pretty good at, at that being equivalent to a full sequence MRI. So there's lots of options and it's much cheaper. So in the patients that I have who can't get coverage for the full MRI, which is a couple thousand dollars, um, then in our community for $4.99, I can do a rapid sequence, short sequence breast MRI, which is much more affordable. Not for everybody. One sentence on thermography. No. One word. That's all. Uh, right. I just no. wanted to put that to right. We don't have to talk yeah. about it other than no. to say, I, do not do it. You no, are just there, giving no. someone money for Correct. no purpose. Correct. No, I, I no. <laughs> you don't do that's enough. <laughs> I think we've got the message. Women are often called back for an additional view, which, of course, is that stomach dropping phone call. You know, yes. come back. We need to see more. Talk about how often that happens and more important, why women shouldn't panic if, if it does happen. All right. So it's about one in four. Um, so yeah. it, it's not a small number at all. Um, and again, it, it goes up with increasing breast density, right? So I, I tell women that if you're lucky enough to have really fatty breasts, it's really where you want to have fat, right? Your chance of having, uh, being able to see everything because your breast lights up on the mammogram as black. So we can see small tumors in that. The likelihood of you needing to be called back is low. It's really in the um, heterogeneously dense and extremely dense breasts where the recall rate is pretty high. And again, a lot of times it's just because the tissue has not been compressed adequately. Um, and so don't panic because the majority of those come back okay. Um, but you know, again, it is, it is a harrowing thing. And I, and I would, I would say one other thing, just along that line, Lauren, when you mentioned, you know, why do the risk assessment to know that you're at high risk, if it's just going to scare you, I would tell you the, the other piece of that, it's not just to identify women who need the enhanced screening, but also to really though, talk about potentially medication to lower risk, which women don't know about. I just lectured at a community event and I asked, it was about a hundred women, how many of them had ever heard of medication to lower your breast cancer risk. And it was zero. Like, like that's not talked about as an option. And we know that there are many very effective, easy to prescribe medications and that we're not doing enough in that realm either. We are not doing nearly enough. And I would like to do an entire podcast. I'm going to bring you back to talk about that because we want to give that the attention that it deserves. And you are absolutely correct that women don't know about these risk-reducing drugs 
and doctors don't know. And in almost every case, these risk reducing drugs, we'll just name one just so, you know, also yeah. can help in other things like bone health, right. the most common risk reducing drug. Right. And, and, you know, Relaxifin, the, the trade name is, is Evista for those right. of you who aren't familiar with Relaxifin. Talk about that, even though we're going to do another podcast, but yeah. talk about that. Well, so again, and things. just the, the, the number just simply is a 50% reduction. So if you have a woman who has a 30% lifetime risk and you can cut that to 15%, I mean, that's huge. And then at the same time, it gives us the opportunity to really talk about all of the important lifestyle things to reduce risk as well, which we don't spend enough time on. We focus on cardiovascular disease to talk about lifestyle, but not breast cancer risk. Yeah, And and that's what I want to focus on now. But before we get there, I have one more question about screening, and that's for women with implants. Is there anything that those women should know, request, do in order to make sure that they're getting adequate screening? Really, there's not. It's really um, um, mammograms. And again, if there's concern about implant rupture, then that's where a non-contrast breast MRI can come into play. Um, But there aren't standard guidelines um, in terms of who should get that and when. Um, And again, uh, you know, I know women, it's sometimes more uncomfortable when they have implants because they really have to compress because there is in uh, women who haven't had breast cancer, there's still plenty of breast tissue there. It's all there. It's just, you've added the implant, right? So you really do have to compress and we do really have to make sure you're getting your mammograms as well. So we've established that there are some risk factors that you need to know about, but you can't do anything about like your genetics, your race, your age. But what I'd like to focus on now are what you just mentioned, the modifiable risk factors, the things that you can control, that you can make a difference. So what would you say is the number one thing that women can do besides risk reducing drugs? (laughs) But what is the number one thing that women can do in terms of their lifestyle that are going to significantly reduce their risk of breast cancer? Well, so um, maintaining ideal body weight is critical. Limiting alcohol is critical. Let's go back to the, but let's do one. Let's do these one at a time. Okay. So let's talk about body weight. Body weight is is really important and it's really hard. And we all know that, um, you know, we have an obesity epidemic uh, in the United States and there's lots of reasons for that. Um, It's not all environmental. There's, you know, obviously genetic component as well. Um, But we know that there's a cancer epidemic and a diabetes epidemic related to obesity, right? So one of the things that we know is that with obesity, that's contributing to the increased breast cancer um, rates that we're seeing, right? So manage, uh, maintaining an ideal body weight um, is really important. And all women who have transitioned through menopause know that it gets harder after menopause to maintain that ideal body weight. Um, but again, it really should be a priority for yeah, sure. And I, for I lowering just breast posted a podcast on that, on, on how to, the importance and how to maintain body weight. It's interesting to me that this elevation in body weight, but being obese is only a risk factor for breast cancer in postmenopause women, not in premenopause women. Yeah. Right. So that goes back to talk about that. that, That's right. That goes back to the um, breast cancer is not all the same, right? I mean, that's really what we're learning now, right? We're seeing so, so many increased cases in younger women. And that really is not a factor about obesity. And like, those are the women that I think we don't really have a handle on now about what's driving their increased risk. You may have heard, and this is kind of going off topic from things you can change again, but there's not just the hereditary cancer panel now that we're looking at, but these things called SNPs, 
which are these single mutations that you have when collectively taken together can really influence risk. I will tell you that I had my own SNPs done and I don't have a lot of the bad SNPs either. So I don't really know. And you are very thin for those of you who cannot see you. And you've always been thin. You've always been a normal body weight woman. Right. Right. Um, So explain why being overweight after postmenopause, why what is it about fat that increases I, I, the risk of breast cancer? Boy, so I don't think we understand the whole pathophysiology, right? And it's the same thing that when you talk about um, in terms of uh, having hot flashes associated with menopause, right? There's differences there in terms of body weight as well, right? We used to think that obese women would have less hot flashes, but it turns out that they actually have more. And, and the reason for that just is because we make estrogen in our fat cells. So when you think about things like breast cancer and uterine cancer that are associated with obesity, the mantra has always been, well, you're making extra estrogen, but then there's this conundrum of, but being overweight, does it make you have less hot flashes? You have right. more hot flashes. And, we and also so, know that there's an association with hot flashes and breast cancer because of the inflammatory reaction. So right. it is very complicated. It's very complicated. And so to your point, I think it would be easy to say that the obesity is because you have the conversion to estrogen in your fat. So you have higher serum estradiol levels. I don't believe that that is really been clarified that that's the cause at all. Well, it's certainly because not the whole story. It might be it's part not of the, it. It's not the whole story because we, it's not just breast cancer where right. the, the rate is up. And to your point, is it because, um, you know, fat also has an inflammatory component as well, right? So I, I don't know what's driving it, but colorectal cancer is higher in um, obese individuals as well. That's correct. And, and also, which is interesting because estrogen, we know, decreases colorectal cancer, and estrogen without a progestin, women who take estrogen alone have a decreased risk of breast cancer. So if you were to walk up to any woman on the street and say, does estrogen cause an increase in breast cancer? The overwhelming majority, and quite frankly, most doctors would say yes, but we right. know that's not the case. That is and, and, it's, and how often does a patient walk in and you say, you know, she's having terrible hot flashes and you introduce the fact that estrogen may be a good option for her. And she'll say, well, no, I'm not going to do that because I'll get breast cancer. And she's 50 pounds overweight. And we Correct. know that the being overweight is a far greater risk or is, is a risk, whereas taking estrogen alone is not. So that's something that, that you and I could have a whole discussion for an hour about that. That's I know you, you and I, I know. preach that all the time. And I, I think that's yeah. that's right, which is, you know, um, we should be talking more about things that women can change in terms of their breast cancer risk and put it in perspective when we are talking to a menopausal woman about hormone therapy to really look at all of their risk factors um, as opposed to just hanging everything on that estrogen, taking estrogen for menopause symptoms is the bad actor when in fact, I mean, I see women who are drinking way too much alcohol. Um, You know, the the number is down to three drinks per week and many, um, you know, individuals who do research in the space would tell you that there's no safe amount of alcohol for women when it comes to breast cancer risk originally and breast cancer recurrence risk. Um, But it's certainly low. So in women who are drinking two glasses of wine per day, I really talk to them about, you know, okay, you want to be afraid of hormones. Let's really talk about the data about what the impact of hormones is on your risk. But let's also talk about your weight, your exercise, your diet, and your two glasses of wine a day, because 
that actually is driving much more of your risk than what we would use. And you get benefits out of the hormone therapy and lots of other ways too. So um, I I think you and I show our patients the same chart. Yeah. Alcohol, smoking, weight, estrogen, and talks about relative risk of breast cancer. And most people are shocked to find that all these other lifestyle things have an equal or significantly higher risk of of being related to breast cancer than, than those, um, than what they're thinking hormones. So, okay, let's move on. So alcohol, you mentioned alcohol, you mentioned three drinks, um, per week, per week. I'm in uh, trouble. <laughs> I know, and I am too. I mean, I listen, I, I, I'm right there with you. I mean, I have been to several, uh, medical breast meetings and I leave them every time saying, you know, as a breast cancer survivor, I shouldn't be drinking at all. Um, but I, have not done that. And I still do drink. And I try very hard to, I wouldn't say that I'm at three drinks a week, very many weeks, but I'm at four or maybe five. But well, and, um, and the idea isn't to completely eliminate all of your risks because we do want a quality of life. Well, that's but right. Um, it's, and, it's a balance. It's a balance. Does it matter what kind of alcohol? In my weight loss podcast, I talk about how tequila is better than wine as far as calories, but as far as breast cancer, does your breast know the difference? No, between no, no data, no data that looks at any differences between the amount of it's. Really- All right. So this is my advice. If you're going to drink wine, make sure it's really good wine because your breasts don't know the difference between cheap wine and good wine. And if you're going to have less of it, it should be really good. Right. <laughs> That's our public service announcement. That's right. That's right. Let's talk about smoking. Smoking isn't good for anything. I'm imagining it's not good for your breasts. That's right. And smoking is terrible. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know. The, the good news is I've seen much less cigarette smoking in my patient population. And you and I have talked and maybe that's been replaced uh, by marijuana. Cannabis, yeah. Settings, right. Um, we don't cannabis, even know what that does to the breast. Right. No, no, no data. Idea. No, idea. no idea. No idea, which is disappointing. Right. Again, you know, you talk about this, which is we don't have great data about cannabis because cannabis we're not studying it and we need to be studying it. But smoking Smoking is just terrible all the way around. Um, And, you know, if I could get any one person, if I had, you know, in front of me that they were drinking too much alcohol, they were smoking, they had a poor diet and they were overweight, um, I would tell you smoking hands down is the thing that they need to quit first. Um, You know, I I both teach medical students and whenever I'm asking them about a risk factor for fill in the blank disease, it doesn't matter what it is. I teach the medical students always say smoking first because you will be right. 95% 95% of the time. Right. I, I agree with you for sure. And then the, the last thing is just diet. Um, the data just continues to emerge. Actually, I just saw something yesterday about vitamin D deficiency, another data set looking that low vitamin D um, is a contributing factor. Um, but really what we see is um, plant-based moving more towards a plant-based diet. And again, I say I, I am not vegan and I work hard, but I am far from perfect at incorporating more cruciferous vegetables and leafy green vegetables into my diet. But there's really robust data that um, more of a plant-based diet uh, is really beneficial for breast cancer risk reduction. Um, and it helps your weight um, in many ways too. But um, making shifts is really important. Is poultry as bad, if you will, as, as red meat? Um, or for breast cancer, so I'm not, not talking about any, other I've not seen any study where it has been separated out when it comes to breast cancer risk. And I think uh, Dawn Muslim at the Mayo Jacksonville would be the one we could ask because this is her yeah. area of expertise. If the data separates it out, my 
um, understanding of the data is it's animal protein taken together. You really want to be eating fish and beans and cruciferous vegetables and really no beef or chicken or very much less, but um, nice. less. And uh, I, I I'm almost afraid to ask this one, but was, where does caffeine fall? So your caffeine has a, as a checkered story, I, I, you know, I would tell you that um, caffeine is not all bad. And um, I Thank have not God, seen, otherwise, yeah, right. caffeine is not all bad at all. You told me to give up both alcohol and caffeine. I, right, right. So, so the caffeine I'm, I'm okay with. Um, I don't know that there's data that um, it increases risk at all. And, you know, there is some data about reduced um, risk of, I think it's colorectal cancer, right, Lauren? You would probably know. Yeah, and, and I do follow the caffeine data because I am an ex-waitress and an ex-obstetrician. And that means- and So you, you like I, caffeine. I drink so much caffeine. It's really, it's bad. Yeah. And, and I am reassured, at least I only, yes. I only read the data that I like that says that having caffeine is not going to increase my risk of breast cancer. What else, what are we forgetting as far as, as lifestyle modifications? Does exercise matter as far as yeah, exercise matters as well? Right. So it's really, it's really all the same things. If you, um, I have a slide that I do for talks now where, um, you know, I have risk factors for cardiovascular disease and risk factors for breast cancer. And you can see that the majority of them overlap, right? Which, um, so all the good things that you're being taught to, to take care of your heart um, are the same things to take care of your breasts and reduce cancer risks. So um, exercise is also very important for that. There's actually really good data in the post um, breast cancer, in the breast cancer survivor population about the benefit of regular aerobic exercise. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly in, in midlife women and Lauren, I know you you talk about this a lot, right? It's a mixture of aerobic and you really need the weight bearing exercise for well, weight bearing for your well. bones. And then um, there's actually some good data with doing progressive weightlifting for hot flashes as well. So, all right, let's just kind of sum this all up. Number one, it's critically important to get screened. It is critically important to know your family history and to get screened for a genetic mutation. You must know if you have dense breasts or fatty breasts, because that is going to inform what kind of screening you might get covered. Um, a little alcohol is okay in my book, <laughs> not too much. You should not smoke. You have to have a good diet. You need to exercise. Estrogen is a-okay. Um, that's you, you summed it all up, Lauren. That's exactly that's good. We didn't need this whole hour. We just needed. That's right. Th those are the take-homes for sure. I, I want you to talk about Ms. Medicine because even though this podcast is not Ms. Medicine, no, you it's are. it's not Ms. Medicine. It's not no, Ms. Medicine, but I would like you to spend just a couple of minutes talking about this amazing, amazing thing that you did in inventing, developing, being out there with Ms. Medicine. Oh, well, thank you for that. You're very sweet. So, um, you know, uh, we've been friends for a long time now, Lauren, and, and you know that my career has taken um, several interesting, uh, you know, turns. So I've spent half my career in academics and half my career in private practice and in academics, both in the internal medicine department and the OBGYN department. Um, but at this stage now, um, I, I left academics a couple of years ago and I'm back in private practice, but for I say the back nine or the back seven or whatever of my professional career now, I really wanted to try to develop something to make a larger impact on women's health, um, you know, outside of more than just in my office one-on-one. -on -one. And so launched this company, Ms. Medicine, um, which is really about 
trying to innovate in healthcare delivery. And what I mean by that is that the um, right now what's happening for most, most primary care providers is they're employed in big health systems or in big groups, and they have to see 26 to 28 patients a day, and they don't have um, really the time or the training to actually do all of the things that we should be doing as primary care providers. Um, and frankly, as gynecologists as well, right? Because you guys are super busy and have short visits as well. So Ms. Medicine started out uh, the first pillar as an organization to network with uh, women's health clinicians who wanted to practice in a membership medicine slash concierge uh, model, which gives me and I practice this way now and the clinicians in my network, um, you know, the ability to see 14 to 16 patients a day really do all of the very high quality women's health care that we um, should be trained and should be doing for all women. Um, and so that's the first pillar of the organization. And then the second pillar is really about physician education. Um, so just had, you know, our first inaugural big CME, but Lauren has been, you've been involved in a bunch of our other CME initiatives, which is part of the barriers to women getting high quality care is uh, women's health education um, and enough training. So doctors like to do things that they do well. They don't like to do things that they don't do well. And so if they didn't get training in their residency or in fellowship, um, really are seeing women, but they don't know how to take care of menopause or sexual health, they stay away from it like the plague. And so this lack of training is really a big contributing factor to you know not getting great care. Um, and so Lauren, you're really passionate about this physician education, the consumer education is so important because empowered patients can force their clinicians to kind of address their needs. I mean, we talked on this uh, segment about, you know, knowing your breast cancer, knowing your family history so you can bring it up to your clinician. Um, but the education is really the the second pillar of Ms. Medicine and something well, that I'm working on. That's really exactly why about. I asked you to talk about Ms. Medicine, because the two questions that I get the most often are number one, why doesn't my own doctor know this stuff? And, you know, there's a lot of reasons, but the point is you are addressing that. You are out there educating doctors so that more of them do know it. And the second is, is where can I find a doctor who knows this? And you and I both tell right. women to go to the NAMS website, yes, the absolutely. Menopause Society website to find someone. But I want to mention that if you are lucky enough to be in a city where there is a Ms. Medicine clinician, then there's your answer right there. And I will put in the program notes the link to the Ms. Medicine website so that you can check it out. But the point is, is that you are doing things that are making a difference in terms of improving women's health care. And I thank you for that. And before we close, I am you do. (laughs) And before we close, I want to give you one more opportunity on this topic. If there's anything that I didn't ask you about or closing remarks or anything else you would like to say. Um, I think, again, the the take home for me is, um, you know, make sure you're getting your mammograms and make sure you know your breast density, because if you're in that 10% that have the extremely dense breasts, your risk is likely substantially elevated and we should be watching you more closely. And, and you need to address that with your, your physician. And if your physician doesn't know how to evaluate that and take that into consideration, then again, there's 
Um, lots of clinicians out there that you should find who can do that and potentially even, you know, a high risk breast clinic in your area. But um, take it from me, mammograms aren't as good in finding small tumors if you have extremely dense breasts. And again, it's an independent risk factor doubling your risk for breast cancer. And so that is the piece of data you really should should know. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. See the light, now I'm sleeping through the night.